Welcome to Garner's Greek Mythology. This is Patrick Garner. I'm a mythologist and the author of three novels. They constitute a trilogy and have one theme, that the ancient Greek gods are here and that they never left. Imagine with me that they were never myths. Welcome to episode five of Garner's Greek Mythology. In our last episode, we spent time with Zeus, the mightiest of the Greek gods. His story is one of endless escapades, seductions, and careless love. He was the first of the Olympic gods, the cruelest of the gods, and ironically, the first of the gods to go. In the end, his end, he tangled with Gaia, the greatest of all goddesses, and things didn't go well, at least not for Zeus. But today we change gods and we switch genders, leaping from male to female, from brute to the most intelligent of the gods. And as always, this series focuses on one thing, Greek gods, of course. Here, the Greek gods are not considered imaginary, hardly. I love opening each of these episodes with a story, so let's do so. This tale is rather obscure, but illustrative of a certain goddess's personality. It begins with a young woman of humble origins and ends with spiders forever weaving their webs. I suspect you've never heard it, but let's see. The goddess who is our protagonist today is challenged by this young woman. Is usual in these contests, the mortal, the young woman loses. Spiders are in a class of invertebrates called arachnids. Our young woman was named Arachne and lived simply in a small kingdom of Lydia in Turkey. She was blessed with an unparalleled skill at weaving, which every woman at the time was expected to master. In short order, she became famous throughout the kingdom for her peerless tapestries. All who saw her work praised it, and the constant compliments led to an increasing pride on Arachne's part. Before long, she boasted and actually believed that no one, mortal or god, could compete with her. In her conceit, she challenged the very goddess who watched over those who practiced the craft. The goddess heard the provocation and was astonished. Rather than immediately punish Arachne, the goddess appeared before her as an old woman. She kindly warned Arachne to quickly beg the goddess's pardon for her folly, that no good could come from such a challenge. Arachne instead laughed and scorned the old woman. Instantly, the goddess transformed into her true appearance. Even then, Arachne refused to apologize. You see, she knew how good she was, and in her vanity, dared the goddess who stood before her to compete. And so the contest began. Each of them wove amazing tapestries filled with exotic scenes and illustrating the great stories of early Greece. There were twisting vines and gods and strange beasts roaming in resplendent fields, battle scenes, boys courting girls, and nymphs dancing in the sun. In the end, the goddess inspected Arachne's finished tapestry. Every stitch was perfect. Her work was indisputably better. Furious, the goddess ripped it to shreds, then attacked the girl herself. No one had ever mocked the gods as daringly. Desperate to escape the goddess's blows, the girl hung herself with a rope. As Arachne dangled before her, the goddess took pity, loosening the rope before all life escaped the girl's body. <sighs> the 
the same moment, the goddess changed her into a spider, whispering, from now on, you can weave whatever you wish. And to this day, her descendants, the vast class of arachnids, weave their webs across the world. This was the Greek origin story for spiders. And who was the goddess? Athena, whom the Greeks called Athenae and the Romans Minerva. From the story, we may assume that Athena's protection did not extend to those who boasted like crows. So Arachne met her spidery fate. In addition to being the goddess of war, she protected artisans and all crafts. She was a virgin goddess. There are other stories. For instance, there's the famous one about Athena's birth. I mentioned in our episode about Zeus that Athena was born fully armored, bright sword in hand. She was Zeus's favorite daughter, and for good reason. But the birth was far more dramatic than simply saying she was born armored. That's not the half of it. Her mother was Metis. In Greek, Metis, that's M-E-T-I-S, means intelligence. Metis was Zeus's first wife. Zeus learned during her pregnancy that her second child, who was yet to be conceived, would be a male destined to overthrow Zeus, as Zeus himself had overthrown his father, Kronos. Prophecies, you see, were taken seriously in those days, very seriously. To protect himself from the second child who was at this point years from conception, Zeus swallowed his wife whole. Expedient, huh? When the time came for the first child to be born, Hephaestus, another Olympic god, at Zeus's signal struck the mighty god's forehead with an ax. Shouting her war cry across the earth and the heavens, Athene sprung forth. She did so fully grown in golden armor and flashing a sword. But tales of these goddesses are always complex. The one about Athena leaping from Zeus's head is dramatic. Mythologists love it, and it is quite grand. But there are other birth stories about Athena. In fact, there are about a half a dozen, and all of them are different. One is that she was born beside Lake Tritonius in Libya where she was nurtured by three nymphs. The lake was fed by the Triton River. Because of that, she was sometimes called Athene Tritogenia, which means born of or generated by Trito. But there's a problem with this tale, and that is essentially that the river and the lake have never been found. But Herodotus and Hesiod and other writers of the time were sure they existed. There, on this lake, she had a girlfriend named Pallas. That's spelled P-A-L-L-A-S. Athena killed her friend by accident, the stories go, while they were pretend sword fighting. That, too, makes a dramatic tale, but some say Pallas was simply her beloved foster sister. Regardless to the ever-reverent Greeks, she became Pallas Athena. And while we're on this theme, I should add that Athena was smart. She was very smart. In fact, she was considered the personification of intelligence. Metis, you remember. Her mother's name gave away the clue. 
but none of the Greek gods, the Olympic gods, were so one-dimensional, and Athene was no exception. She embodied far more than mere intelligence. Sure, she was bright, and she protected crafts and artisans, but almost inexplicably, too, she was the goddess of war. Whereas Ares, the god of war, reveled in bloodlust, Athene specialized in disciplined, rational use of war, at least sometimes. The wars she initiated were meant to protect communities. The wars she participated in were meant to protect warriors she favored. She played a key ongoing role in the Ten-Year Battle of Troy. Odysseus considered the most intelligent and cunning of Greeks warriors in that conflict was shielded from blows and given constant advice by the goddess. And she guided him the following 10 years as he struggled to return home after the war to his wife and son. Homer in both the Iliad and the Odyssey describes her relationship with Odysseus. She's almost like a big sister to him, counseling and guiding him throughout. He eventually makes it home, and Athena is with him up to the very point that he sets foot on the beaches of his beloved island. She's always depicted fully armed. There was apparently not a playful cell in her divine body. Whereas other gods might be seen lounging on low couches and partaking of ambrosia and song, Athene remained stern, ever watchful. In ancient Greece, she frequently appears in sculptures and on pottery. She stands, legs apart in a warrior's stance, wearing a crested helmet, her reserved face is in profile. She appears on Athenian coinage, straight-nosed and wearing a wreath made of olive leaves. Her owl is on the obverse of every silver coin. When shown from head to toe, she holds a spear in one hand and a mighty shield in the other. Her owl often sits on her shoulder. You have the sense that she only deals with big issues and important matters, and that she would never join you in the evening for a glass of wine. It's not that Athene is hostile or unneighborly. It's not that at all. But if you were to walk up to her with a question, Instead of turning to look into your eyes, she would simply stare into the distance, pondering perhaps some goddess business far too complex to share with a mortal such as you. Her watch over arts and crafts included sharing divine secrets and insights. Her help was often revolutionary. She actively participated in crafting objects such as ships and intricate devices of war. For instance, she designed and supervised the building of the Argo, the famous ship used by Jason and the Argonauts in their search for the Golden Fleece. The Argo was the first Greek ship. Athene invented its sails and even its configuration. She taught the helmsman how to steer it across the seas. To relate this to contemporary times, we know that astronauts and Argonauts are closely linked. Astronauts are referring to sailing through the stars, and the Argonauts were sailors who rode on the ship called the Argo. Another of her innovations was the famous wooden horse used in Troy, the so-called Trojan horse. 
which was used to smuggle Greek warriors into the city. She worked with Odysseus, I think it was his idea, to build this enormous horse. And its success allowed the Greeks to finally end the 10-year siege. You see, like Odysseus, Athene was cunning as well as ingenious. She was Pallas Athene, remember? Pallas had a double meaning. In addition to meaning girl or maiden, Pallas was derived from pallion, which in ancient Greek meant to brandish. As we know, she often brandished a sword. I personally prefer the semi-mystical derivation of Pallas, the one that links her name to the girlfriend she killed while sword fighting. But enough of Pallas. She had multiple titles. One used by Homer was Glaucopus, which meant bright-eyed, gray-eyed, or flashing-eyed. To the Greeks, she was Pallas Athena, or she was Glaucopus Athene, the intelligent shining one, or you remember she was even Athene Tritogenia. But her many names do not begin to describe her passion. The Greeks wanted it both ways. She's often personified as dispassionate, the intelligent, rational goddess. But Athene should not be seen as tranquil. That hardly fits this fiery goddess. We saw her reaction when she was challenged by Arachne, the weaver who was too full of herself. Her fury led to Arachne's transformation into a spider. A similar fury possessed her when she caught Tiresias, a man living in Thebes in Greece, spying on her while she bathed. Artemis, her sister goddess, would turn men caught spying into deer to be hunted. In comparison, I suppose, Athene was kind. She only blinded Tiresias. <clears throat> After Athene took away his sight, one of the goddess's favorite nymphs pleaded with her to be merciful, not to leave him simply blind. Relenting, Athene granted Tiresias the powers of prophecy and long life. Consequently, he lived seven generations and was taken under Apollo's wing. Why Apollo? Well, you may remember that the Pythia, the oracle in Delphi, worked under Apollo's protection. In the Greek mythos, accepting the Pythia, Tiresias was considered the most insightful prophet to have lived. He too channeled Apollo. The gift of prophecy was revered in Greece, and Tiresias was prophecy's personification. What he predicted always came true. I should also mention that Athene bestowed another unusual gift upon Tiresias. For a seven-year period, he lived as a woman, then was transformed back into a man. This unheard-of alteration gave him unusual insights into both men and women. He, of all humans, lived as a biological man and as a biological woman, and then as a man again. His transformation, this fluidity, was a phenomenon that astonished the Greeks, but then they were aware of his confrontation with Athene. Did I mention that Athene was the protector of Athens? It must have occurred to you, the spelling of Athens and Athene are almost identical. One ends in an S and one in an E. Scholars of the time argued about whether the city was named for her or whether Athene was named for the city. 
It was said that she competed against Poseidon for the honor of being the city's patron. You remember the sea god was Zeus's brother. They held their contest atop the Acropolis, the massive hill which overlooks the city. Poseidon raised his arms high and then brought down his trident, cracking the rocks. The blow created a well of seawater, which was intended to impress all with his immense power. Athena, on the other hand, quietly planted an olive tree. He was the first to appear in Greece. After she showed his benefits, her gift was judged by the people watching to be superior. Poseidon was furious, but she had prevailed. Shortly after 450 BC, the Athenians built the Parthenon atop the Acropolis. The Column Temple remains to this day the world's most famous building. The name was derived from Parthenos, which in ancient Greek means the Virgin, that is, Athene. Inside the temple was a massive gold and ivory statue of Athene created by the great sculptor Phidias. And outside, looking toward the sea, was another colossal statue of the goddess, this one made of bronze. It was said that it was over 70 feet tall. And it was said that sailors returning to Athens could see the sun glinting off her polished spear from miles away. I don't want you to think that Athene and Poseidon were always at odds over this. Among the gods, allegiances shifted constantly. I spoke earlier of Athene helping Odysseus during the Trojan War, and I mentioned the Trojan horse. As was so often the case in these old Greek stories, there was far more to it. The Trojans saw the horse outside their city walls and persuaded themselves that it was a gift from Athene. Yet there were those who doubted. The Trojans had an oracle in the city named Cassandra. She warned them that allowing the horse into the city would bring disaster. But Cassandra's fate was to be ignored. The Trojans dragged the horse into the city through a massive gate. Just before dawn, the Greeks inside slipped out, killing the guards and opening the city gates to the thousands of enemy soldiers waiting outside. Troy was sacked, and the Trojan men all massacred. The women fled or were divided up among the soldiers as concubines or common slaves. Cassandra, the prophetess, fled to Athene's temple inside the city, clinging for protection to a statue of the goddess. One of the Greek warriors, a soldier named Lesser Ajax, ripped her away from the statue, raping her inside the temple. Little did he know that Cassandra was a favorite of the gods. Apollo himself had blessed her as a seer and granted her prophetic powers. Imagine yourself at the scene. Athene is infuriated, outrage against everything sacred. She decides to punish Ajax and his companions. And here we see the anger of Athene in all its nakedness.
Remember earlier I said that Athene was the war goddess, that unlike Ares, she specialized in disciplined, rational use of war? Not always. Arachne saw only a tiny bit of her fury. Ajax was to see it in its fullness. To ensure her success, she teamed up with both the mighty Poseidon and her father Zeus. When the sack of Troy was complete and the city in ashes, the Greek soldiers pushed their ships heavy with the spoils of war into the sea to head home. Zeus gifted Athena a storm, sending forth thunderbolts, hail, and sheets of rain. His lightning strike set many of the ships ablaze. Poseidon, for his part, sent surging waves and whirlpools. He swore that before it ended, the sea would be full of corpses. Just imagine, in the bedlam that rakes the sea, Athene herself throws a thunderbolt at Ajax's ship, sinking it with a loud explosion. Yet Ajax, in his endless arrogance, swims safely away. He might have escaped had he not loudly boasted that he had eluded even the gods. Poseidon overheard him gloating and struck an immense rock with his trident. A fragment broke off and hit Ajax where he swam. As Homer later wrote, it carried him down deep and deep into the boundless surging sea. And so Ajax died. What can we make of this? Athena protected those who paid her respect, and she destroyed those who dared mock the divinities. In so many ways, she was no different than her father Zeus or Apollo or Artemis or Ares. They were gods, and mockery was never tolerated. Whether a mortal's heart was innocent or devious, if they insulted Olympia, punishment followed. If mortals were deferential, if they respected the sacred ways, they would be protected. That is, usually. These mighty beings, these gods were strangely missing, though, at critical times. Since we're discussing Athena, I'll focus only on her absences. In the summer of 430 BC, the city of Athens was struck by a plague. It might have been smallpox, or bubonic plague, or even Ebola, an ancient disease. Virulent plagues were not unknown to the Greeks. One had even swept the Greek soldiers besieging Troy. But the one to hit Athens lasted almost three years and killed 20 to 30 percent of the population. Did Athena intervene? Did she marshal the Olympic gods to end the plague? No. The city's protector was strangely absent as thousands of her devotees died. Fifty years earlier, in 480 BC, Greece was invaded by a Persian king, Xerxes. Athens was overrun, its citizens were forced to even flee to a distant island. The city was torched and the Acropolis burnt. Did Athena bring her divine might down on the invaders to protect her children? No, she did not, and in the aftermath, Athens was almost broken. Its survivors slowly returned and began to rebuild. But then a mere year later, in 479 BC, a Spartan general, Mardonius, whose troops were funded by Xerxes, again invaded the city. This time, Athens was not just burnt, but razed to the ground. 
Did Athena raise a finger to stop the destruction? Did she recruit Zeus to throw his mighty thunderbolts? No, and 2,500 years later, we have to wonder what happened to the city's protector. It's clear that when crisis struck, too often Athena disappeared. These disappearances happened repeatedly. Yet after each instance, the Athenians rebuilt Athens and continued to rever Athena. Clearly, her connection to the Athenians was not what we might expect. I'd characterize it as something else entirely. Instead, theirs was a bond, almost a psychic attachment of her people to the goddess. We might accurately call it a love affair. The Athenians did not expect Athena to physically intervene when they were threatened. No, that sort of protection was their responsibility. Otherwise, they would not have trained constantly as soldiers nor have manufactured shields, spears, or swords as a regular business. If Athens were invaded, failing to stop the invasion was the Athenians' fault. Perhaps this relationship is analogous to that of a mother and her warrior son. Once the son has grown, if the household is broken into, the mother cannot be expected to protect her son. No, he would fight to protect her. And so the Athenians held themselves responsible for the disasters man-made and natural that periodically struck the city. Was there more to this complex divinity? Robert Graves, the English poet, wrote that Athena invented the flute, the trumpet, the earthenware pot, the plow, the rake, the chariot, and ships. We've talked about the Argo. Athena was called upon in Athens to adjudicate criminal trials. For instance, if the jury, so to speak, was split and the accused sat in waiting, they would call upon Athena to decide the guilt or the innocence of this party. And she was known to frequently side with the accused, much to the irritation, if not anger, of those who had brought the charges. As the ancient era ended and the Romans claimed possession of Greece, Athena, like the other gods, quietly eased away. The Romans had, without permission, renamed her Minerva. It was absurd. She needed none of them. The smoke from sacrifices had never been appealing. Athena was, in many ways, a loner, and it suited her and suited the end times. One golden morning, about 50 BC, she slipped away with her owl, as she scanned Athens and the rest of Greece, she was gray-eyed, bright-eyed. Of course she was. She was Glaucopus Athene, the intelligent, shining one. Nothing truly bothered her, and nothing ever would for long. She took her owl and turned her back on it all. Within minutes, she vanished from the pantheon. She became unrecognizable as Athene. She reappeared in another land, but now as an independent and perhaps wealthy young woman. She was spotted periodically in Sicily and Alexandria and France. No one was quite sure who she was. No man dared approach her. She exuded, you see, a certain dangerous and strangely indestructible aura. She needed no one. Those who saw her sensed as much. Many centuries later, her appearance unchanged, she reconnected with Artemis, Hestia, and Apollo, who had all similarly assumed different guises. And in that darkening age when a new religion spread through her lands like a plague, 
She simply watched. There would be time and another time for her to re-emerge. In our next podcast, we'll discuss Artemis, the huntress, Apollo's sister and the protector of girls and wild animals. She's as complex as Athene and every bit as fierce. Join me for the next episode of Garner's Greek Mythology. This is your host, Patrick Garner. Be sure to visit patrickgarnerbooks.com or find me on Amazon. My three novels are set in today's world and feature Greek gods who meddle and maneuver as they always have.